Hello, I'm Abram Van Ingen. And I'm Joanne Diaz. And this is Poetry for All. In this podcast, we read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time. Today, we're very excited to welcome Vincent Sherry, the Howard Nemiroff Professor in the Humanities at Washington University in St. Louis. Vince is an expert on modernism, and he recently served as the editor of the Cambridge History of Modernism. He's especially interested in the literature of the First World War, which he's written a great deal about. And today he's going to walk us through two poems talking to each other from near the beginning and the end of the war. The Soldier by Rupert Brooke and To His Love by Ivor Gurney. Welcome, Vince. Well, thank you, Abram, and thank you, Joanne. And I'm delighted to be here. Um, Rupert Brooke, we'll start with him. But just to, to look at the poets just in connection here for, for a minute. Brooke died early in the war, early in 1915, of fever, though, not of wounds. He never saw combat. He was a poet from the sideline of the war, and he saw it and wrote about it from a somewhat idealizing perspective. Gurney, on the other hand, spent a number of months in the front line of the war. Uh, He left with something like what we call PTSD. Uh, labeled shell shock or more more grandly neurasthenia. So it was the same war, but different experiences and very different outcomes. And with that, we get two very different poems about the war. Would would you be willing to to start us off by reading The Soldier by Rupert Brooke? Uh, so this is The Soldier, uh, written early in the war and published early in 1915. If I should die... Think only this of me, that there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. There shall be in that rich earth a richer dust concealed, a dust whom England bore, shaped, made aware, gave once her flowers to love, her ways to roam, a body of England's breathing English air, washed by the rivers, blessed by sons of home. And think this heart, all evil shed away, a pulse in the eternal mind, no less, gives somewhere back the thoughts by England given. Her sights and sounds, dreams happy as her day, and laughter, learnt of friends, and gentleness, in hearts at peace, under an English heaven. Thank you. I wanted to ask you both for one word to characterize the atmosphere, the feeling, or the effect of that poem. You know, it seems to me that that word gentleness near the very end is such the feeling of this poem. There's such a kind of... Uh, a warmth and a gentleness to the idea of dying here in war. It's sort of like laying somebody down to sleep in in the course of this poem. I don't know which word to choose, but I'm very drawn to the word pulse. If I had to choose one word, because it's as if his body, which is so suffused with all that's English and is England, it's a material thing that's, that he's imagining as a dead thing in the earth of a foreign field, but it will live forever. It'll always have a pulse that enriches that foreign field. 
And that word pulse really, and that line in general, a pulse in the eternal mind really stayed with me. So a, a gentle pulse or a pulsing gentleness. Mm. I think those words comprise something like the idea, the conceit, uh, the concept of the poem. Mm. Those words sort of are like a tuning fork, actually, for the sensibility that Brooke is bringing to this war. Uh, he's a member of a school of poetry called the Georgians, who named themselves after King George of England. They had a sort of national or nationalist orientation. The word England occurs five times. Hmm. The Georgian school was uh, was a very, I wouldn't say anti-modernist, but certainly non-modernist school. They turned inward in England. They turned to an older England, a traditional rural scene sort of England. Well, in that rural that you point out, just just there's just this sort of very beautiful, lovely pastoral countryside that has nourished and brought him into being and sends him off into a very peaceful sort of seeming war where he may lay down to sleep sometime. <laughs> mm -hmm. And actually, this poem appeared several times on recruiting posters. Mm. Wow. All right. This is a country and a war that you would want to die for and die in. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's part of the extraordinary power of the poem that our second poet will be speaking back. Mm. And yes, it's pastoral, but it's pastoral nationalized. Mm. It's a pastoral mobilized and, if you like, weaponized. And while it is beautiful, it's very much, if it's a stately beauty and if you like a stately form, uh, it's also a beauty and a form of the state. <laughs> All right. Yeah. It's a politicized poetry. Yeah. It is a sonnet, uh, it's a 14 line poem. It falls into eight line unit and six line unit, an octet and a sestet. It's very conventional in a lot of ways. Uh, those who know sonnets know it usually as a kind of problem solution format. The first eight lines sets out a problem, the last six lines a solution. I think what's remarkable here and really worth marking is that the solution doesn't come where it usually comes in the ninth line at the turn or volta from octet to sestet, it occurs in the first two lines. <laughs> if I die, which I guess is a problem for most of us, okay, <laughs> even if death is at 100%, not only in war, if I should die, think only this of me, that mm. one corner of a foreign field that is forever England. What's remarkable about that to me, so we've talked a lot about sonnets in this in this podcast, and exactly as you say, there isn't a turn at the ninth line, but even apart from there not being a turn, usually a turn is, is most evident when you when a poet uses the word but, but for the, you know, but this, but that, I'm, I'm turning now to something else. And right at the beginning of the ninth line, you have, instead of that word, you have the word and. Mm -hmm. and so the whole poem is just one long crescendo. Exactly. It builds, it builds, it doesn't turn. Yeah. And it builds and it escalates, if you like. It goes from the imperial terrain to the imperial heaven. A heart's at peace under an English heaven. They're not even uh, content now with this globe. It has its ideology. All right, that dead soldier's body in the foreign field is a piece of uh, of of the imperial project mm -hmm. occurring within and under the guise, if you like, of the extreme beauty of the poem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's also a poetry that you know it beauti it beautifies. Uh, it calls a dead decomposing body richer dust. 
that's a phrase that will get repeated and echoed and inflected and even angrily talked back to later. Yeah. It's a poetry that enforces an innocence that seems, as Abram indicated and Joanne echoed there, you know, it seems like how could this poetry really accommodate the actual ugliness of war? Washed by the rivers, all evil shed away. This is not a war, this is not a poetry that seems suited to the realities of modern war. Yeah. As I hear you talking, I can't help but think about how problematic that romanticization is that you're describing. At the same time, uh, this for me is a very resonant poem because a few years ago in the New York Times, this might have been in maybe 2014, there was an article about the vestiges of World War I on the landscape in France, and it was a photo essay. And the photos, which are amazing, uh, show you the mine craters where there was once a small village. They show you German trenches that you can still visit and monuments that are in the forest. And so even though this is a war from 100 years ago, the land still carries those wounds. And I can't help but think of Rupert Brooks' poem in that context. Yes, it's, that's such a wonderful touchstone, the actual landscape of war, where war is fought and where it, where it lives as a memory. So that, I think, allows us to transition into the, the dragging on of the war. You know, yeah. you know Brooke died early in 1915. Uh, he becomes sort of sanctified in memory, uh, sort of preserved in the purity of a future that never happened, of a future war that was never fought on. Mm -hmm. But that war happened to our second poet, Ivor Gurney. He served on the front, he was twice wounded, he was gassed. Uh, he returned to England in 1918. He was on the front much of 1917. He returned actually to music school. He was a prolific composer as well as a poet, but he was increasingly unstable. He experienced, well, again, what we call PTSD, but what they had other words for it. He was institutionalized. And all of this, um, all of this, I think the music and the con psychic condition, if you like, are coming through his 1917 poem, To His Love. It has its own value. It has its own terrible beauty, I think. But also, and first of all here, it's an answer, a talking back, even if it isn't explicitly intended as a talking back to Brooks' poem, to Brooks' black-hearted, postered poem. Okay, I'll read this. To His Love. He's gone. All our plans are useless indeed. We'll walk no more on Cotswold, but the sheep feed quietly and take no heed. His body that was so quick is not as you knew it on Severn River under the blue, driving our small boat through. You would not know him now. But still he died nobly, so cover him over with violets of pride, purple from Severn side. Cover him, cover him soon, and with thick set masses of memoried flowers, hide that red wet thing I must somehow forget. Hmm. Um, Joanne, uh, Abram, 
words, Gurney's words to Brooke? Uh, I'm torn because I think for me, I'm most drawn to Cotswold and Severn because, you know, I was talking earlier about landscape and geography. And you said this with Rupert Brooks, the soldier, with the, you know, the many times that he refers to England. But Ivor Gurney is even more specific with Cotswold and Severn in making this a distinctly English poem. Mm -hmm. So I'm very drawn to those geographical markers, mm -hmm. but I'm also drawn to those final lines. Uh, masses of memoried flowers hide that red, wet thing I must somehow forget. Those are terrifying lines to me. Absolutely. I mean, I feel in a certain sense as though he's saying to Brooke, that it was all a cover up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you have you have covered up this thing. You have hidden this thing from view. Uh, and what we're really talking about here is not some beautiful pastoral piece of England transplanted to another field. What we're talking about here is a a, a dead body, a red wet thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and that if you're if you're going to cover something up, that's what you're covering up. And we need to be clear about it. Mm -hmm. I'm interested too in how the poem. I get you, you know, how you mentioned with Rupert Brooks, the soldier, how the Volta actually seems to be at the beginning. With this poem, it feels like the poem ends in the first sentence. He's gone mm -hmm. and all our plans are useless indeed. It seems like there's no place you can go from there. Right. And yet by the end of the poem, it's still so clear that that he can't conclusively feel anything. It, it's um, it won't resolve itself. I think that's wonderfully put, Joanne. Um, you know, it's it's Brooks' poem upside down. Mm. Um, it's the Georgian landscape and actually the Georgian meter and rhythm and pulse, if you like, uh, running in reverse. Let, let, let me just offer some thoughts on the details of it that I think that build out what both of you have said. Uh, just in comparison with Brooke, you know, Brooke works in even numbers. He's got 10 syllable lines. He's got 14 lines. He's got an eight line unit and a six line unit. Eve, all even numbers, deeply even keeled the British ship of poetic state, right? Sailing on. However, that may be, I think it's interesting that Gurney here is working in five line stanzas. And if that is an, an odd number and in the several senses of odd, that there's a, an irregularity about this poem. Okay, it won't settle. Mm -hmm. This poem is nervous, all right? Pulsing, mm -hmm. it's, it's more jumpy. Also, the syntax and the sense and even the rhythm is breaking regularly against the line ending, all right? We've got a kind of conflict between the units of sense and the units of rhythm. Mm -hmm. He's in jamming and jamming. Mm -hmm. His body that was so quick is not as you knew it on Severn River under the blue driving our small boat through. If you respect the line endings, you have to, tr you have to ab abrupt the, the pulse of the language. And then the last, this last stanza, which is so stunning, cover him, cover him soon with thick set masses of memoried flowers. Hide that red wet thing I must somehow forget. Gurney's Englishness does not export, okay? His body is not as you knew it on Severn River. Would not know him now. 
we'll walk no more. So it's a landscape canceled. And just to add another, take no heed. I mean, there's there as you say, there's all these cancellations. There's these no's and nots, and it's not this, and it's not going to happen. And, it's, and and one of the things I wanted to add, we we've talked a lot in this podcast about line endings and, mm-hmm. and what a poet is doing with line endings and enjambments. That is a line that goes on to the next line, and and why they might do that. And you know what's noticeable about to, about this poem to me is there's various line endings that really draw out um, multiple meanings. So his body that was so quick, well, quick is a word that also means alive, mm-hmm. is not as you knew it, and and even down further, uh, you would not know him now, and that trails off into the poem, but still he died, and then the next word is supposed to be explaining wh- how, that he died nobly, but still he died nobly. But if you just stop at the line ending again, the point is. He still died. That's it, right? Yeah, gone, useless indeed. Uh, and and again, one one last thing I notice about these line endings is that because the first word is capitalized, in the last line the first word is thing, mm-hmm. and it gets a capital T. And if you're looking at this poem, it just jumps out to you as the capital T thing monster uh, at the heart of this poem. Absolutely. that, I, And I think, you know, if the Georgian landscape is canceled, so is the Georgian language, the language of beautifying consolation. The first word of the last line is the word that says, I have no words. That thing, you can see a child pointing with his short finger, that thing, a line of wordlessness, right? The poem enacts that if the unmaking, of the language of national consolation for this war. You know, I, even as I hear you talking about the forgetting that's attempted at the end of the poem, I'm thinking about, I can't get my mind off of those sheep in line four, um, where they, they will walk no more on Cotswold, where the sheep feed quietly and take no heed. The animal world is oblivious to the concerns of the humans. Mm-hmm. The sheep don't have to forget anything because they don't remember anything. They don't care at all about the futility of this this death. One other thing I noticed about that last line, and we were talking about how this poem speaks back to the Rupert Brooke poem. The first line of the of the Brooke poem is, if I should die, think only this of me. In other words, remember me, mm-hmm. but remember me this way. Yeah. Uh, and then you get the last line of this poem, which says, now this, this person has died. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and become this red, wet thing that I must somehow forget. That it, it's the trauma of remembering that is the problem of this poem. Indeed. And if I may add, you know, post-traumatic stress is such a problem because one cannot go back to the source of the memory. One cannot mm-hmm. access it to remake it. And so, you know, Gurney, as the, as the, as the victim of shell shock or PTSD or neurasthenia, is committed he has to try to forget but meanwhile all that he went through is Hmm. i think we should read both these poems again but before we do that just to just to bring forward this point and drive it home about how they accomplish their effects Mm -hmm. i think it's really important to think when we say that the the brook poem is beautiful and stately well, it doesn't just happen. It happens in a certain kind of way with a certain kind of use of language. So if you think even there about the um, the stateliness of the meter, the, the evenness of it, but also in terms of the alliteration, so body, breathing, blessed, mm-hmm. uh, laughter, learnt of friends, sights and sounds, 
uh, and so forth, dreams and day. What Brooke is doing is building all of these resonances so that the music is harmonizing all the way through that poem. Whereas, you know, with the Gurney, you, you described it as a very nervous, anxious uh, poem and, 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 and jumpy. And part of the way we get that is that lines one and three don't rhyme in these stanzas. Then lines two, four and five are the same rhyme. And they're usually a kind of forceful rhyme mm-hmm. that, that, that indeed feed heed died pride side these are not um gentle rhymes uh and so the effects of these poems are not accidental it's the way that they use the sounds of these words the way that they arrange them the ways that they're playing off of meter that create that sense of either beauty and stateliness on the one hand or jumpiness and anxiety on the other hand i think that is so true that it's in the music and the uh, the acoustic, I have to tell you, I was once teaching a class in France, and I feel that the students' uh, English was, um, let's say, um, undeveloped. <laughs> but I was reading these two poems along with a couple of others, and I knew that those students who did not speak English got the feeling of these poems without actually knowing fully the meaning of the words. Huh. Yeah. The rhythm and the music and the the physical body of language as an affective dimension, the feeling within the sound of the words, uh, the meaning within the sound of the words was so powerful. Yeah, absolutely. So now maybe I'll read these poems just just in sequence and let them work both as setup and as as repost, as response by by Gurney. Okay? Yeah. Mm -hmm. The Soldier by Rupert Brooke. If I should die, think only this of me, that there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. There shall be in that rich earth a richer dust concealed, a dust whom England bore, shaped, made aware, gave once her flowers to love, her ways to roam, a body of England's breathing English air, washed by the rivers, blessed by sons of home. And think this heart, all evil shed away, a pulse in the eternal mind, no less gives somewhere back the thoughts by England given. Her sights and sounds, dreams happy as her day, and laughter learnt of friends, and gentleness in hearts at peace under an English heaven. And to his love by Ivor Gurney. He's gone, and all our plans are useless indeed. We'll walk no more on Cotswold, where the sheep feed quietly and take no heed. His body that was so quick is not as you knew it on Severn River under the blue driving our small boat through. You would not know him now, but still he died nobly. So cover him over with violets of pride, purple from Severn's side. Cover him, cover him soon. And with thick-set 
masses of memory flowers hide that red wet thing I must somehow forget. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you for reading those, Vince, for being with us today. I'm glad to be here. Thank you very much for having me. And our website, again, can be found at poetryforall.fireside.fm. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you to all of our listeners.